Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, we come to you with such great confidence, knowing that this indeed is the case, for the kingdom and the power and the glory all belong to you. As a result, Lord, we are trusting you by your word to lead us away from temptation, to guard our hearts from the evil one, to deliver us from his power and influence. Would you shape our hearts and minds as we look to your word this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're looking at Romans chapter 1 this morning. Verses 18 through 32, continuing where we left off last week. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open uh, to follow along with me. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Would you have a seat? There's one of those fun passages this morning. (laughs) Well, last week we were talking about the gospel, the good news of God's salvation for people. And it's as though uh, Paul wastes no time in moving from the good news to the bad news. And I think that's very intentional. I think there is a sense in which he is highlighting the bad news, lest we don't understand the significance of the good news, as it were. For if you don't know you're in trouble, even though you are, you're not going to be looking for the rescue that you are in need of. Uh, 
that's just kind of human nature. It's kind of where we are. And, and we do that all the time. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, on our trip up to Michigan of a month ago, uh, my plan, I planned to ride up there from Kansas City with a friend, meet him there. He wanted to, to ride our bikes up uh, through, uh, where were we? Kansas, sorry, Kansas City. I guess we were Missouri. Started through Missouri, Iowa, I don't even know where I was. <laughs> Wisconsin, into the upper peninsula of Michigan, and then come back down on the other side and, and arrive back at the, uh, the, the family cottage, because his family has a cottage a few doors down. Uh, from us, so that was the plan, and uh, uh, but when I started and turned my bike on, this light came on that I'd never seen before. But it started just fine, you know. It was a light by the the battery indicator, and it was it didn't come on all the time. So it's one of those: is this a bad light? Is this a good light? The bike is running fine. It's starting. You know, I went down the road, kind of kept an eye on it. And uh, it would come off and on, but the bike just seemed to be doing just fine. So I got to his house, you know, told him about it. We, you know, we plugged the battery in all night to make, just in case it was low on charge or something, and start off the next morning. Again, you know, kind of worry about it, but not really uh, too concerned. But as we, we hit, we planned to do this in three days. And after our first night, and the light was still on, and I started thinking about where we were traveling up in the upper peninsula of Michigan. Well, that's just wilderness. And there's just nothing up there. If you get up there and you have a problem, you have a real problem because you're stuck. Uh, so we made a decision, decided to cut it a day short and kind of took the straightest route we could back. But everything seemed to be working just fine the entire time. And the next day I took it to a, a, a shop to find out if this was anything I needed to be concerned about. It turns out my stator was bad, which if you don't know what that is, it's kind of like the alternator in the car. And... Uh, it was so bad that he, when they didn't have the part there, but there was one about 20 miles down the road, I said, well, let me just get on my bike. I'll go down and get it and come back. He said, oh, no, you can't ride that bike. <laughs> like, I just rode it 1,100 miles. He says, he says, I have no idea how you got here. It was one of those things. It was, it was that bad. So he let me have his, drive his truck 20 miles. What kind of mechanic is so nice that he says, oh, just take my truck? But I did. I took the truck, got the part, came back. He, put it in place. But it just goes to show, you know, I didn't have any idea how serious the situation was in my bike, and I could have been stranded along any one of those remote highways that we had traveled on. You know, so Paul is, what he's doing here, he's saying, look, I want you to know that they're a lot worse than you think things are, that your need for this good news that I'm announcing is, is much greater than you may be aware of. And so he's going to launch into this section where he's highlighting the significance of our need for this good news. So that's what he does. And so he starts out, of course, saying, you know, right off the bat, um, God has revealed his righteousness in the gospel. And then he turns around and says, and in the present, God has revealed his wrath or is revealing wrath. So you go from revealing righteousness in one sentence to revealing wrath in the next. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, pair that he's put there together. And I want to ask some specific questions about how this passage is meant to really help us in our understanding of the gospel. So let's ask these questions. First of all, well, what exactly is the wrath of God that he's talking about here? 
Secondly, against what specifically is this wrath directed? And then finally, we'll ask, how is this wrath revealed? Because he says it's revealed, so how is it actually revealed? So that's what we're going to find out as we look at this text. And so we ask the question, what is the wrath of God? And if we think about that from our, you know, our ideas that we already have in mind, we think about great days of judgment. We think of fire falling from heaven. We think of really bad things coming down upon the earth. And there is a sense in which the wrath of God will ultimately be revealed and bring an end in the day of judgment. The scripture is replete with, with talking about that. There's no shortage of talking about the day of judgment is coming. But that's not the wrath he's talking about here. Uh, so we have to be cautious of that. And, and I know we tend to think about that form of wrath, the form of fire coming down, or even natural disasters are often thought of as God's wrath coming down. And maybe that's the case and maybe that's not the case, but we have to be careful because there's, we don't have any specific authority telling us that this or that natural disaster that we see occurring in our world today is a direct result of something these people did to earn God's wrath. So when we think back to Hurricane Harvey, and people may have said, oh, well, that was God's wrath being poured out against the people of Houston. And maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but we don't have any revelation that that was the case. Or the drought that's happening in the southwest, or the fires that are happening out in the far west, or the, the floods that seem to happen all the time out in the east. All these natural disasters or tornadoes that go through the Midwest. You know, we, it would be very easy to pick on those because that's the kind of wrath we think of when we think about God's wrath being poured out. And in the time of the first century, it's not as though there was one of those particular events that Paul could refer to and say, well, this is what, how God's wrath is being poured out. It wasn't that. And he's going to go on in a minute to talk about it. But it's something else about the nature of God's wrath that is being revealed in this time. So what can we discern about God and his wrath. Well, sorry, I lost my place in my notes. We, also, we know this. God's wrath is not like man's wrath. I mean, how often have you poured out your wrath on your loved one? Or if you're a parent, your child. Or a friend. Because we do that. We do that because they've hurt us, they've wronged us, and we react against that. It's as though we're, we're seeking to pull out a pound of flesh to replace the pound that we feel is missing in our own hearts or minds. So it's this sense of wrath we associate often when we have it with some kind of personal vendetta or payback. And that's not at all, of course, what we know about God. The character of God that's been revealed never has some personal vendetta. That wrath isn't some unjust thing that he feels personally attacked, therefore he's coming after you to get back at you. Wrath is always associated with the justice of God. So in some aspect, the kind of wrath that we're expecting to see is a reflection somehow of the justice of God. And it's not, again, it's not the, the end that he's saying. Paul is not saying the end is about to come or it's being revealed in this time. Uh, but we do need to know that, that somehow justice is coming. Because if the day of judgment is still a ways off, and we think about God's justice is only coming in the form of God's day of judgment, then we're left in the interim thinking that nothing's happening with regard to the wrongs that are going on in the world. 
And that too can be a bad place for us to be. To think that God is completely withholding all of his justice toward that final end day. Therefore, in the interim between now and then, wickedness is left unchecked. And, and we know that's not necessarily the case either. But it's a dangerous place to get to think that the only forms of justice that are going on are not related to God in this world. So we need to know as people that yes, God's justice is at work even today, even before this final day of judgment. As a Yale divinity professor talks about in his book, he expresses the need, the only way that when you live in a world and you're facing oppression that you can lay down the sword is to have a measure of assurance that God is carrying his. Because if you don't feel confident that God will carry his, that he will in fact punish the oppressors, then you will feel no choice but to take it up yourself. And so if we want to live as Christ tells us to live with the ability to turn the other cheek when things happen to you, the one thing that will help us to do that is to know that, yes, God's wrath, God's justice is real. It's being poured out even in some measure in the present. John Stott defines his wrath like this. He says, his wrath is his holy hostility to evil, his refusal to condone it or come to terms with it, his just judgment upon it. So there we have this idea of of God's wrath, but against what is this wrath directed? And we find that, of course, in verse 18. He says, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what is unrighteousness and what is ungodliness? We talked a little bit about righteousness last week, about being in a right relationship with God or being in a right relationship. Uh, reflection of living in accord with the character of God in whose image we were made. These are aspects of of righteousness. Godliness is is simply with regard to God. Do we live with regard to God in this world? So if you think about ungodliness and unrighteousness and you want to simplify it in some terms, you could say ungodliness means we're living against God or those who are living against God and unrighteousness means those who are living against man. A little bit of an oversimplification, but that's the idea. For all ungodliness and unrighteousness in men, that's what God's wrath is targeting. That's what it's being revealed against in the present. Well, who is guilty of this ungodliness and unrighteousness, we have to ask. And again, verse 18 tells us, men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Those who suppress the truth. As I was reading John Stott on this, he does make an interesting observation to say this is not... He's not talking about those who are ignorant, but those who are insolent against against God. In other words, there's this active suppression of the truth that's been revealed, which, of course, could bring us to another question. Are there people out there who are uh, living in ungodly, unrighteous ways without knowing they're doing that? And... It's, I, I suppose it's theoretically possible. Maybe we think about young children who aren't yet aware. They're just following the examples that have been set. Perhaps. You know, he doesn't specify. What he does on, goes on to say is, well, well, who is accessible to this truth that Paul is speaking about? And that's what he launches into in the next section. In verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So God has made himself known. This invisible God has made himself known in that which is visible. That's what he's saying. And if you think about who has access to this level of this measure of truth, well, it's everyone on the face of the planet has access to seeing the created order that exists. And I know it's not one of our daily things to get up and start to contemplate, hmm, I wonder where this tree came from, or I wonder where this beautiful mountainside came from. But there are moments in life when you do have to wrestle with those things. I do need to understand who I am. Where did creation come from? Where does it exist? I mean, there's no shortages within our culture and society of people wrestling with those questions. They're important questions to wrestle with. And what Paul is saying is it's very plain that there is a God simply based on the evidence that there is a creation. There is a creation, therefore there is a God. Now there's different measures and different levels in which you can see that. If you're, a, if you're a, just a casual observer and you have some time away and you're out in the countryside or you're in the mountains or you're at some getaway location and you pause and you look up at the sky at night and you see the stars, you see the constellations, and you can simply appreciate their beauty. And like going into an art gallery and looking at the beauty of those art pieces that exist, you would never stop and think, wow, it is amazing how those paint colors just came together on that canvas in that particular shape that we could appreciate its beauty. There's, that is not a rational conclusion to draw. And in the same way, if all you know is looking up the sky and it's beautiful, you realize, well, there has to be an artist who put it together like that. But if you're more than that, like many were, especially in the ancient world, who would take observations of the stars and the constellations in the sky and would find that they, they followed in certain patterns, that would find that they could actually communicate uh, the portent of specific events that would go on in the world, then you realize even beyond the beauty that has to have an, an artist behind it, there is an intelligent being that's, that's putting these signs in the sky for mankind to see. I mean, one of those signs, of course, was was the Magi seeing the star over Bethlehem that's talked about. The book of Revelation talks about constellations. Job talks about constellations and how they have significance in their meaning. You know, the Magi perhaps derive from the school under the time of Daniel, living in uh, an Israelite, wise man, Israelite, living in Babylon, perhaps had taught them some of these things about signs to look for this, the, of this future king. We don't know specifically. But they communicate something more than just some random exhibit of beauty. Or if you're working at the micro scale and you see the complexities that exist in, the, for example, the eyeball or some other part of the human body, and to think, well, how many, how many, what are the odds, statistically speaking, that random chance could produce random molecules to come together and to, to, to come into this particular form of existence with this kind of specific functionality. And you may be able to calculate that if you're a mathematical statistician, but it's, it's, it's way out there in the, you know, the one billionth and one billionth of billionth of a chance. I don't know what it is. I'm not a mathematician, but you can imagine it's so extremely remote that the idea that we came about as a result of, you know, random chance over time 
through evolutionary process would require so many billions and billions of years, there's just not enough in the observable universe. So people have, in order to come up with some explanation for creation, have, have grabbed at wild and random ideas that don't fit any of the evidence that they see. And you think, well, why are they doing that? Well, he says, by their unrighteousness, they're suppressing the truth. There's something pushing them to find some alternative explanation to justify their behavior of living without regard for God. It was uh, years ago in seminary, we were, we were instructed to read a book by Stephen Hawking called A Brief History of Time, which is a fascinating book. It's not very big. It's surprisingly written by one of the premier geniuses of the world. It's not that hard to understand. He writes incredibly in language that's accessible. And he writes about his observations about history and especially about the history of the world. And he talks about uh, the evidence of, of the, the universe and how it's expanding. And he's extrapolating back to say, well, if it's expanding now, how do we understand our beginnings from that? And he continues to trace it back in his argument, going back to the... And it's, it's as though you're seeing he is, he is arguing for the existence of God. It looks like that's what he's doing. And he gets all the way back where that's the last step he has to take because it's where all the evidence that he's been talking about points to. And it's like he just puts on the brakes and stops and suddenly takes a left turn and says, oh, but the universe has always been here. Therefore, it wasn't just expanding. It was contracting before that. So it's always been contracting and expanding because it's in this steady state idea. And you think, Mr. Hawking, where do you have evidence for that? Well, there is none. So why would you conclude that? Well, because I can't, I can't. How? How is this wrath revealed? And this is where we get into the stuff that's the most controversial of the passage. And I want you to remember that the wrath being revealed, it's not the future day of judgment wrath. It's not what he's talking about. That will come. It isn't the measure of justice that we see coming from the government, because that's another way you could say God's wrath is revealed in the existence of the government itself who bears the sword. And Paul talks about that later in this book. It's not that form. Instead, he spells it out. It's happening in the present time, and we find it described in verses 24 through 31. Therefore, God gave them up. And there's that therefore word. It's a key word. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. 
So the key words here, how is the wrath of God being revealed? It says, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up to all of these things, these practices that we see so prevalent going on in the world today. And what Paul is saying, these things, these, these practices that you observe is actually evidence that the wrath of God is being poured out. It's a fascinating thing to say, that somehow that itself is evidence that God's wrath is being revealed in the present day. Now, I know that that's an idea, especially when you think about the the homosexual lifestyle that he keeps mentioning here. That seems a very unpopular thing to say. That doesn't fit with what people want to claim is normative in life today. This is that passage that if, if they want to hold of liturgy of the Bible, they have to find some way to reconcile this passage with what our culture has embraced or society wants us to embrace. Because those things seem on the surface to stand in contradiction. And it is interesting, if you think about it, we're, which, our, by the way, our society is not any different than any society historically, but we tend to look at the kind of the, the commonly accepted way of looking at the world around us as the ultimate truth against which everything else has to be measured. So if we can't fit the Bible to this ultimate source of what is true, then we have to throw out what God's Word says. And I think a lot of well-intentioned people don't want to have to throw out the Bible, so they're seeking to find ways, how do we reconcile this passage with what our culture says is right and true? Because our culture would certainly say what's right and true is that a homosexual lifestyle is perfectly legitimate, is legitimate alongside any heterosexual lifestyle. They would, they would seek to legitimize that, and any attempt to do otherwise is being you know, called a hate crime, perhaps, for example. So it's a hard thing. So how do people reconcile this text with that idea? And it all has to do with how they view this word natural. Natural. Because a lot of people would argue that Paul isn't talking about all homosexual activity. He's talking about those who are pursuing homosexual activity who aren't homosexual by nature. So they're violating their own nature. So some who have a heterosexual nature who practice homosexuality, well, they're guilty of violating their nature. But someone who is homosexual by nature, they would be violating their nature if they participated in a heterosexual relationship. That's how they would interpret this. So it all hinges on, well, what does Paul mean when he says nature or natural? Because the argument goes for someone who is making that claim. It says, well, I have to do what feels natural to me. And for me, what feels natural is this specific kind of relationship. And so if I violate what feels natural to me, then I'm in violation of what Paul is saying here. So we have to ask the question, Does Paul mean what feels natural? And we don't even have to look up the word natural because that doesn't fit with any of his categories. There's never some time that he's talking about something as normative or ordinary because we feel a certain way. It either is or it isn't. So when he talks about according to nature, not according to what you feel is natural, but according to what is natural. In other words, the created order. After all, he's been talking about creation in this passage. 
for people observing what has been made in creation. So the way God made them in creation, of course, is male and female, and he brought the male together with the female to form one flesh. And that's the, that's the, the natural created order. So he's specifically talking about that which goes against the natural order in which God has created it. So we see these practices as evidence of God's wrath in the present day being revealed. But it's not just that. You know, it's, this, is, this is the first step. It's not, his, his end-all be-all isn't to focus on homosexuality. It's to focus on all this activity of the abased mind. And that's what he goes on in that last section to talk about. Since they did not see, free, uh, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. And then he mentions this whole slew of things. From covetousness to evil, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. All of these activities are destructive to society. All of these activities work to break apart the relationship that God wants in, to be healthy. For a flourishing society, these go against it. So how does God bring judgment upon a society? He gives them over to these things that break society down. So when we see the evidence of broken society as a result of these things, we can say God is revealing his wrath in the present, and he's done that. What's the familiar expression? He's given them enough rope to hang themselves kind of thing. So there is evidence of God's wrath as we see in this passage, and it's, it's revealed against people, of course, in, in our day, just as well as it was against Paul days, Paul's day. And, and you could ask, well, why is he doing that? Why is he allowing these things to go so far? Well, one, it's because sin, of course, evil needs to be judged on the one hand, but I think, too, there's an aspect in which he is taking what they've done on the inside. Remember, the, res, the, the origination of this wrath is the suppression of truth. And the suppression of truth is not something you can see on the outward of a person who's doing it. But you can see all these other things on the outward. It's as if he's taking what's been hidden on the inside and he's exposing it and showing its true nature on the outside. So we can see what is happening in the world today. And I, Paul is very clever as a writer, by the way. He's, he reminds me in this passage a little bit like uh, Nate, the prophet Nathan was to King David. If for those of you not familiar with that story, you know, when David was uh, guilty of, of, uh, of uh, adultery with one of his soldiers' wives, Bathsheba, while he was out fighting, you know, he sees his wife and he wants her, and so he invites her in, and they have an adulterous engagement that ends up producing a child, which forces him then to try and scheme his way out of that. He's unable to do it. And he hasn't been called to the carpet yet, and the prophet, whom God has revealed this to, comes to David, and he, he, he presents him with an alternative scenario, something that's kind of similar, but not hitting too close to the mark and asking David to make a judgment upon it. And David makes a judgment upon it. He's ready to go kill the the wrong man who took the sheep that didn't belong to him. And he says, well, you're that man. You're guilty. It's like he sneaks his way underneath his defenses to expose 
expose David. And what's interesting about this passage is he continues to use the word they, they, they. And it's really easy for people in the church to read, oh man, they, those people out there who suppress the truth with their unrighteousness. You know, and he says about this kind of lifestyle that we probably don't see a whole lot of within our own specific circles. So it's very easy for us to be going, yeah, Paul, you get them, you take it to them. You know, we're right there with you, pointing our finger. But you remember, Paul is building his case, and this is just the first group of people he's beginning to expose. So he's like, he's pulling you alongside, so you agree with him. And in the next chapter, the next section we're going to look at next week, he's turning the tables. So while you may not feel that this was aimed at you, if that's the case, well, next week is aimed at you. <laughs> so... Because he's building his case to what he concludes in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the case he's building. So he's taking this people group that we can very readily and easily see are falling under the judgment of God, and now he's going to attack another people group, maybe I'll attack the wrong words, but identify, another people group, and then even a third people group. He's going to get three different people groups meant to encompass the whole gamut of people so that he can say, in conclusion, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, why would he do that? He's doing that because he's highlighting the fact that this, this righteousness that God is revealing in his good news proclamation is vitally important for you. So while you this morning may not perhaps think that that particular wrath is being revealed against you or people close to you, the point is that he's showing God's wrath is being revealed. So while you may not fall in this people group, you are falling under one, of the, uh, uh, one people group that it is coming against. So pay attention as he spells out the good news, because it is good news. He doesn't want to ever leave you in that place where you just feel beaten down and judged. The whole point is to restore life. That's what the gospel is about. It's the rescue from this depravity. It's a restoration of real life that human relationships and societies can flourish and not be broken down. So, what's your, what's your takeaway from today? Your takeaway is, I need to listen to this gospel, this good news that Jesus Christ and his righteousness has been revealed so that I, by faith, by trusting in Him, in His righteousness, God can look upon me and see Christ's righteousness. Judge me as not guilty. Invite me into His family. Adopt me as a member and inheritor. Send His Holy Spirit to administer to me so my life might progress from its evil state to this holy state that He has declared it to be. And all through the work of Jesus Christ. Starting with faith, ending with faith. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for Paul and his careful writing of the gospel, his sneaky way of getting underneath our defenses to expose us to the fact that we are all guilty before you, that your wrath is justly coming towards us. Hence, we need this good news of the righteousness of Christ